And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Just over a week ago, on Monday the 17th of August, the Democratic National Convention began. Of course, it did not begin in Milwaukee as it was supposed to. I mean, at least for the most part, it was not in Milwaukee at all, but rather a virtual convention, really an unprecedented occurrence in political history. And um, here with me to talk about what ensued during the Democratic National Convention is Dr. Gerald Mast, who is professor of political science, in fact, chair of the political science department at Carthage College. And of course, uh, one of our most frequent guests and valued guests when it comes to matters political. So we will talk about how the Democrats did in his uh, opinion in terms of how they managed to perhaps capitalize on, on really strange circumstances and uh, whether or not they were able to put together an effective uh, convention via uh, virtual formats. And then we'll talk about the Republican uh, National Convention uh, coming up and in a sense what we can perhaps expect or wonder about and what they need to accomplish uh, during their convention. And from there, with whatever time remains, we'll uh, look at kind of the overall campaign as it goes on from here until November. So lots to cover. Uh, Dr. Gerald Mast, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. It's always good to be here. I'm so glad that you're making time for this. I know we're all busy preparing for the uh, oncoming fall semester at Carthage. And uh, so I really uh, am appreciative of your time today. So, um, first of all, uh, if this isn't too personal a question, how much of the Democratic National Convention did you manage to watch? I mean, were you glued to screens pretty much night after night after night, or was your viewing of it, at least in real time, a bit more intermittent? I, I would say that I paid more attention to this one than, than any previous one. Uh, in terms of the consistency of, of my, my engagement. Um, I did watch all of it, uh, the, all of the, the, the televised um, portions of it uh, each night. There's all kinds of things going on in the background, of course, uh, in the, the, the rooms that are not receiving um, the kind of media attention um, that, that the, the highlighted elements uh, of each night um, gets. Um, and I've been paying attention to uh, conventions going back um, all the way to the the, the, the mid '80s, and and uh, this this one I, I paid the most attention to. So I don't know if that uh, that has anything to do with the medium through which it was delivered. Uh, perhaps I was particularly um, drawn to it because it should have been in Milwaukee, and I was so hopeful that it would be. But um, that's my uh, how I, I I experienced it. Right. One. Uh one point that was made, I think uh, 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 John Favreau, former speechwriter for uh, President Obama, made this point uh, on his podcast, is that uh, it seemed to him that unlike previous political conventions, this was one in which, at least on a number of different channels, um, you basically were able to watch it uninterrupted. I mean, with very little in the way of interruptions from pundits who might chime in while some music was playing or something else was going on that they deemed to be not necessarily worthy of full attention. Uh, and, and I guess on, on certain stations, you, that is still how it worked. But for a number of different uh, channels and venues, watching this was, in John Favreau's words, 
like watching a two-hour uninterrupted infomercial for the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and, and the fact that it was relayed to the public, uh, at least to large measure, in uninterrupted fashion, he thought was significant. Uh, did that strike you as well? Yeah, I guess I, I can't um, speak to it because uh, I, my default um, channel uh, is public radio and public television. And so I watched it on PBS and they took a more conventional approach. They did filter uh -huh. it a, a bit. And so there was some editing and, and uh, editorial choices about what, what to cover, what not to cover, when to pull their commentators in and so forth. And so, I mean, I didn't get the unfiltered version that um, Favreau must be referring to um, uh, to, for comparisons purposes, but I mean, it is an interesting point. Um, and I guess, uh, uh, you know, um, it would be worth studying to see the, the impact of, of experiencing the convention in that unfiltered fashion relative to uh, the, the mediated um, uh, versions on the various kinds of outlets that one might um, choose. Right, in which people proceed to tell you what you just saw and uh, right. why it affected right. you the way they think it did and so on. Right, right. Um, right. So, uh, first of all, in just a nutshell, um, well, let's start with this. What kind of challenge did the Democrats face in terms of putting together this kind of a convention like none has ever been put together before versus what was going to be a conventional convention uh, in, in downtown Milwaukee. Uh, just explain, in a sense, what the stakes were and some of the challenges that faced them in trying to decide how to handle this. Um, so uh, I'm going to maybe give you more of a nutshell than you, you, you thought. I mean, I, I guess it's worth thinking a little bit about the kind of the historical function of, of uh, conventions. Why do we have them? Um, what is the point of them in the first place before we kind of tackle the question of um, how does uh, moving a convention from a particular geographic space into the kind of the, the ether, so to speak, um, what's entailed in, in, in that transition? Um, so we've had conventions for quite a long time. Um, the first uh, national party convention was in 1831 um, by the anti-Masonic party. <laughs> um, but the Democrats quickly followed suit um, the, the following year in 1832 uh, and held their first national convention. So we've had them for um, quite a long time. Prior to, in, in the first three decades of the country's history, of course, the selection of nominees to, to run for the, the president uh, largely occurred through um, the, the Congress itself. So party leaders in Congress played kind of uh, kingmakers within their parties. And, and um, the election in 1824, uh, in which um, John Quincy Adams was anointed by the, the House of Representatives, um, nobody getting a majority of the Electoral College votes that year, um, really angered uh, certain members of um, the American political um, community, um, including um, Andrew Jackson, who had more popular votes and more electoral college votes than um, John Quincy Adams, um, meant that uh, Andrew Jackson kind of committed himself to reforming the, the nominating process, uh, began the process of, of campaigning on a grassroots level in local places, building supports, first kind of um, presidential campaigning uh, at the grassroots level that we've seen, such that um, when he captured the, the, the presidency in 1828, um, this new approach kind of um, reigned. And, and the, the, the point of having a national convention um, presented itself in the form of, of um, these kind of 
recruited grassroots delegates um, in local and state um, areas coming together to meet and um, uh, select uh, to follow through on on, on the, the the person that they are pledged to um, took place. And then, um, I mean, we can think about periods of which the conventions changed a little bit. Um, power uh, from the 1830s through the 1860s is kind of centralized in national party leaders. Um, but in 1854 uh, in Ripon, Wisconsin, um, political uh, figures created the Republican Party and captured the presidency in 1860 with Abraham Lincoln <clears throat> effectively killing the Whig Party uh, and moving the Republican Party into the two-party um, kind of uh, top slot. And Ripon, Wisconsin is a long ways away from Washington, D.C., and so national party leaders, um, you know, ended up with less sway. State party leaders had more sway. Um, party bosses and the, the big city machines um, had, had a lot of say. Uh, and that, that kind of... Um, kind of more or less played out uh, until the early um, years of the 20th century, the progressive era, kind of going after party machines and party bosses, began the process of pushing uh, 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 primary elections to move the influence from party leadership to, to voters. That was a really slow process. Um, you still had a lot of sway on the part of um, uh, party leadership um, through much of the 20th century. You also had parties that were quite heterogeneous. So you had um, Democrats with plenty of conservatives and plenty of liberals uh, within their ranks. You had Republican um, Party with plenty of liberals and plenty of conservatives within the ranks. And so you had real kinds of opportunities for division within the parties themselves. And so the, the conventions were this space in which these different factions within the parties could negotiate their differences uh, and come to some accord over who the nominee ought to be. This takes us from a historical standpoint all the way up uh, to, to 1968. 1968, of course, the, elect, uh, the, the Democratic Convention was held in, in Chicago. Um, in March of uh, 1868, um, the sitting president, Lyndon Johnson, chose not to run for re-election, um, uh, stepping aside. Uh, and Hubert Humphrey becomes the kind of the establishment um, choice, uh, the favorite son of the kind of party elders. He chooses not to run in any of the um, primaries um, because the primaries weren't binding. So the primaries, um, for the most part, picked delegates pledged to a uh, particular candidate, but that pledge wasn't binding. And so the, the convention still kind of figured it out uh, who was going to be uh, the, the nominee. And, and uh, Humphrey was challenged uh, that year by um, Robert Kennedy and by, um, by uh, uh, McCarthy. And um, the, uh, the uh, Kennedy, of course, was assassinated, um, and um, the, the party convention, the National um, Democratic Convention, chose Humphrey over McCarthy, even though um, Humphrey didn't have delegates uh, or votes uh, in the, the primary system. That triggers an enormous amount of, of anger and, and, and uh, um, dissatisfaction with the kind of the left um, part of the party, the anti-war um, part of the party. They engaged in a lot of demonstrations. The Chicago police engaged in a pretty violent crackdown. Riots ensued. Um, and so coming out of the convention in 1868, the Democratic Party really looked in disarray. And in fact, it really was in disarray. And, and so um, President Nixon was uh, 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 elected in 68. 
And in the years that followed, um, the Democratic Party uh, was committed to um, fixing, the, 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 uh, to avoiding that situation in, in um, election cycles um, in the future. And so the, the Fraser-McGovern um, Commission um, essentially set the rules for uh, the kind of current modern system in which um, delegates would be bound to candidates and the, the convention would uh, pick the person with the most delegates uh, one in the primaries, kind of essentially solidifying a democratic small d kind of democracy approach to picking a nominee. Republican voters in short order um, admired that approach and insisted on the, Demo the Republican Party um, to follow suit. So since that period of time, um, the conventions kind of have lost their their function in actually selecting the nominee. Um, and political junkies have been hoping for a brokered convention for, for, for some time, um, but we just, we, we don't seem um, likely to do that. Uh, the, the, the primaries kind of figure this out. And instead, what the convention does, uh, it doesn't really select the nominee so much as it follows the will of the, the voters within the party. Um, what the conventions do is they serve as a platform for promoting the party, for kind of um, building uh, uh, bridges between the, the factions within the parties, um, although those factions have kind of declined in intensity um, in, in recent uh, uh, you know, in the last 40 years because the parties have become more internally consistent, Democrats more liberal, um, Republicans more conservative. There's still um, clear factions within the parties that need to be kind of um, brought on board. Um, but for the most part, the conventions now function as this, this reaching out to the country, um, a, a kind of messaging. What is the narrative behind um, the Democratic candidacy or the Republican candidacy? And so when we kind of bringing it to, 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 to today, with um, the pandemic, the, the, the um, Democratic Party uh, decided, I think wisely, although it hurt <laughs> for those of us here, um, that it, it didn't make sense. It wasn't safe to con congregate um, in, in con big convention halls and, and in um, hotel conference rooms and so forth and meet in person. And so the convention um, becomes this uh, uh, online kind of um, well-scripted event that, you know, in some sense, um, it had been moving in that direction for, for years and years. But this really solidifies the campaign's control in many ways over the nature of the convention, the, the, the crafting of the, the, the convention. And it gives it gives the candidate and um, their campaign more control over the way in which those messages are packaged. And so, um, I mean, I, I'm a little old school. I miss the idea of a live convention. I think that, that um, place matters enormously in politics. Uh, and something real is lost when somebody is giving a speech to an empty room. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. You're, you're, the, you're the, the, the expert on music. Um, there's a difference between, between live music and music that's produced in a, a studio. And both forms have their virtues. Um, the, 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 the studio produced version is super polished and, and uh, um, well, well, well produced production values are really, really high. The live version has an energy to it. Um, 
that can't be re replicated in a, 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 a studio format. And so those are the kinds of advantages and disadvantages that um, I think campaigns, if this approach um, is to, you know, be embraced, are going to have to kind of deal with. I think um, that uh, on, on balance, the Democratic um, party did a good job with its convention. Um, I thought its production values were pretty high. There were moments where I was w wishing that applause would um, kind of um, intervene in a candidate speech. Not every, not every um, candidate, or I, I should say, not every speaker is as good in a, 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 a live situation. Um, and some are better in, in a, a, a non-live kind of uh, an audience list situation, if you will. Um, uh, but, you know, on the whole, I thought it was, um, it worked pretty well. To your point about uh, speeches without applause, uh, I heard one commentator say, and I hadn't thought of it till I heard them say it, is that uh, particularly right off the bat, apparently, I actually saw very little of the first night, but that uh, there was a succession of speeches that seemed very much like old-fashioned, run-of-the-mill speeches that would have been given in the big hall uh, and delivered that way also. I mean, even standing at a podium and so on. But, of course, it wasn't the same, and there was no audience, and there was no applause. And uh, this commentator drew contrast between that and what Michelle Obama did, in which she was not standing at a podium and and in many respects, she clearly was not making any attempt to deliver the same kind of speech that she would have delivered were it been a live uh, situation in a huge uh, convention hall. And first of all, I agree with that, uh, that assessment. I'd be curious to know what you think. And I would also love to know whose decision that was. Was that Michelle Obama or somebody in her inner circle or one of the organizers of the convention who figured out somehow that that would be the most effective way for her to uh, present what she had to say. Any thoughts? Right. Yeah, I, I, no, I agree with you. Uh, I, I would add her husband to the list of people who did a very good job without an audience. Um, uh, I don't know exactly what it is that makes someone's effective speech without an audience effective. Uh, something about the cadence, something about... Um, their relationship to the camera. I, I don't know what it is, um, but but uh, I thought um, of the speeches, and um, some of them were were kind of flat and and I, I, not particularly effective, from my opinion. Um, but um, of the list of speeches that were very effective, uh, Michelle Obama's for sure, and Barack Obama's um, uh, definitely effective. Hmm. I'd be curious to know uh, what you thought of the. Uh, presentations that were not speeches at all, but uh, pre-produced video packages of one kind or another. Um, there were a plethora of them uh, sprinkled throughout the convention. Uh, did you feel like, at least by and large, those were well done and effective? Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, um, to the ex I've never been at the end of a, a, a convention where I felt, wow, I really know what the narrative is here. I know what the story is here. Mm. This year, I totally know what the narrative is. I know what the story they're trying to project is. And I think that um, their ability to, to uh, try to, 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 you know, um, very um, consciously create that narrative um, is matched by their ability to do so. And that is through um, very careful uh, video um, 
creation, editing, and and production, and so forth. Um, so you know, it's just some examples of of things that that struck me as as really effective in a political sense. Um, the very opening that you you missed, um, uh, unfortunately for you, I think, um, uh, they opened with. Um, uh, uh, a variety of different people, ordinary people speaking. Um, and the, the obvious characterization of the people who are speaking is that they're so diverse. There's a real plethora of, of skin color, of gender, of, of age. Uh, and it really did look like the country at large, uh, ordinary people. And they had kids um, engaged in, you know, um, a recitation of a, a kind of American iconography. So that we, we had, we had kids um, uh, and 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 older people, but primarily kids, um, doing things like reciting the preamble to the Constitution, um, singing the the national anthem, um, uh, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, and. You know, it, it really struck me as that the theme here is e pluribus unum. Um, it is a group of people who are very different from each other uh, committing to this kind of catechism of national identity um, to create this sense of this is who we are. This is America. Uh, America is, is old and young and in between of all sizes and shapes and colors. And, and uh, um, that's part, I think, of the narrative that the party is consciously um, crafting. Another part of the convention that I missed, but I've heard a lot about from others and to a person, they all thought it was incredibly effective was the way that the roll call was handled. Uh, so I wonder, first of all, for the sake of anyone else who did not see it, as I did not see it, if you could just kind of describe the way that was handled, and then I would love to know your assessment of whether or not that had impact on you, and you, if, if you think that had impact on, on lots of viewers. So um, the roll call, uh, once upon a time, super important uh, because uh, it, it reflected the, the various delegates from across the country deciding to back a particular candidate. And once upon a time, we didn't know who the winner was going to be because um, those, those candidates weren't um, bound by uh, those, those, those delegates weren't bound to particular candidates. And so there was this element of, of, of enormous importance to the roll call. Um, and there are times where they had to go through many, 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 many different roll calls at a different convention um, in order to arrive at somebody with the majority of the delegates. Today, it's it's kind of um, ritual um, that that lacks that uh, uh, kind of enormous importance. Um, but rituals are themselves important. And so um, the roll call uh, is a moment in which every state gets to uh, stand, you know, in the light, limelight and, and cast uh, its uh, uh, delegates for the various candidates um, who did well in, in, in those states. Um, that, of course, uh, in a conventional sense, um, takes place on the floor of the convention. Um, and uh, this time around, of course, it, 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 went, it was done remotely, right, via video. And so um, each state had uh, one or two or sometimes three people 
who um, were selected to do the the delivery of how that state's uh, uh, delegates um, broke down in favor of the the well, essentially, it was um, only Biden and and, and um, Senator Bernie Sanders um, at this point um, for whom the delegates were going to be um, counted. Uh, so. Um, as you moved from state to state, some some uh, presenters were inside, some presenters were outside. Uh, all of the presenters were chosen with kind of particular, you know, thought in mind to create a, again a, a very diverse demographic panoply of the population. Um, and each of the presenters gave a twist on um, the kind of the geography, the political geography of their state. Uh, it was moving, I thought, um, uh, and it reinforced um, that part of the party's narrative about what this campaign and the election is really about. Hmm. And I think, well, that, you know, I mean, if, if, if I may, I, I mean, I just, I just kind of clarify the, 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 the narrative, I think that the campaign and the, the party is trying to push um, is that the, the Democratic Party is, is the, the party of pluralist democracy, an inclusive and tolerant party of, of great diversity. Um, and uh, it, it is, in some sense, um, kind of a, a party that's committed to uh, 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 recognizing and being honest about um, the problems that the, the country faces, committed to delivering on some levels, to some degree, progressive solutions um, to those problems. And at the same time, in a, in a very paradoxical way, it struck me that the Democratic Party was trying to cast itself this week as a kind of conservative guarantor of the country's ideals and principles and, and values. And so, so in some sense, um, and this is, you see this uh, re repeatedly um, through the, the, the week's uh, presentations. I, in particular, I would, I would highlight um, President Obama's um, speech an appeal to the kind of country's founding um, values uh, that the Democratic Party is the one that is in fact um, committed to that and 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 by you know uh, implication um, they didn't really imply it the, 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 this was kind of explicitly said um, again and again um, in contrast to a, a, an incumbent president President Trump who is in some sense a threat to those kind of national values and national ideals associated with the rule of law, respect for um, everyone, including one's political opponents, um, a, a, a commitment to integrity with respect to elections and, and, and so forth. Hmm. The other moment that I wanted to be sure to ask you specifically about was um, something that usually happens in conventions, but in a very, very different way. And, and that is that uh, when you have uh, a, pre a presidential campaign in which there are a number of candidates, almost always those candidates who end up falling short for one reason or another still have a presence in the, in the convention, are given a moment at the podium, and uh, typically are greeted rapturously by, uh, by, by those who are there. And, 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 and of course, the, the point of it is not to glorify them in that moment as much as for them to have a, an opportunity to pledge their loyalty and support to whoever the presumptive candidate uh, or, or nominee is. Uh, it was very striking to me this time around that we had this moment um, 
can't remember if it was last night or the night before, but this moment that was essentially a Zoom call with seven of the contenders. Uh, oh, yes, that was yeah. last night. Yeah, so Cory Booker, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Andrew Yang, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and, and Bernie Sanders. Uh, so instead of their appearances at the convention being kind of peppered throughout the schedule, here they were sharing the screen together in a Zoom conversation together for the purpose of expressing their support for, for, for Joe Biden. I was just really struck by how different that was uh, in this format. Uh, it, would, it would be sort of comparable to if the seven of them had gone to the podium in a live convention and somehow in tag team format uh, expressed their support for Joe Biden. But the way this happened, I thought was incredibly effective and I didn't expect it. I agree with you. Uh, and so I think that um, th this is a strength of the medium um, in which you can visually communicate a sense of unity uh, as well as to, to reinforce a, a, a verbally expressed sense of unity. And so just as um, conventions have always been about trying to um, mollify the contending factions within the party itself, um, you know, so too that was part of this week's agenda. And, and by having all of those contenders come together, uh, we got to hear them, you know, express support for the nominee, but they, we got to see them to do it together in a kind of interactive way, um, which just, you know, strengthens the sense that the party is in fact united. Um, and I, I, here's an, I think another example of how I think that worked effectively um, this week. So uh, uh, early in the week, um, I mean, every night they had a, a number of, of Republicans show up, um, but but they had a, a, I believe it was, um, it, 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 I believe it was the first night they had a, a, a number of prominent Republicans come forward. They had John Kasich, former governor of um, Ohio and former congressman, former contender for um, the Republican nominee, uh, Meg Whitman, um, former governor of New Jersey, former um, administrator for the EPA under George W. Bush, Meg uh, Whitman, um, Susan Molinari, and uh, um, Colin Powell, Colin Powell uh, the, the, the following night, right? So a number of these prominent Republicans come forward and express their support uh, for, for, for Joe Biden. Um, that first night they had these Republicans come forward, but they also gave um, Bernie Sanders a, a significant platform that night uh, in which to do the same. And so uh, this struck me as, uh, you know, a, a very clear uh, intentional um, effort on their part to create this sense that we, the, the Democratic Party, right, we are a big tent party. We have, um, uh, we're tolerant and accepting of all kinds of people in the demographics sense, but also in a political sense. Um, and so you had, you had um, uh, uh, Sanders, and then um, uh, uh, a little bit later, you had um, Elizabeth Warren um, speaking on behalf of the, the, the Biden um, candidacy as um, a, a reasonably acceptable from a progressive standpoint, um, vehicle for um, at least somewhat progressive solutions to the kind of big problems that the country faces on the one hand. Um, but you also had Republicans coming forward, not endorsing um, a kind of progressive solution to, to problems, but 
kind of making the case that that Biden is the kind of conservative guarantor of, of American ideals and, and national um, principles. Um, and and I, I do really think that the the, the video format there um, was effective at kind of organizing and structuring a series of of of, of speeches and events um, to kind of drive home that message. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Gerald Mast, chair of the political science department at Carthage College, and we of course are talking about the recently completed Democratic National Convention, which of course played out in virtual format almost entirely, and uh, and and now we're going to turn our attention to the upcoming Republican National Convention. So first of all, Professor Mast, uh, as we know, in just about every single poll, President Donald Trump is trailing uh, his Democratic challenger, Joe Biden, and in some polls, trailing him by quite a lot. And so that would seem to suggest that this convention matters a lot more than perhaps it normally would with an incumbent seeking re-election, uh, in a sense, in, in, in better shape in respect to the polls than President Trump finds himself. So uh, if you were advising them, um, what would you be telling them in terms of what must be accomplished at their convention and how? Yeah, I mean, so there's clear, clear um, uh, challenges uh, for them at this point. Um, one, I guess I just start out with is kind of technical uh, because President Trump has um, it took a long time uh, on insisting on an in-person convention. Um, the and only in you know um, relatively recently ha did he decide. Okay, we'll we'll go online. So the, the amount of time that the um, campaign is going to have and the Republican National um, uh, Committee is going to have to 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 put together and produce an online convention um, is much smaller than it was for the Democrats. And so that, that will be, um, I'm kind of interested to see if they're able to um, kind of uh, uh, approximate the kind of the, the, the quality in terms of production value and that the Democratic um, uh, National Committee was able to, to do at their convention. Um, the, there's an advantage uh, to going second. Um, so they can see what the Democrats did hear what the Democrats said and make some adjustments um, to uh, what it is that they want to say uh, in order to kind of build a narrative, a story that um, kind of, you know, takes a, a advantage of, of certain opportunities that the first party um, uh, gives them, um, but it allows them to kind of react to and respond to um, certain kinds of narratives that the, that the first convention, the first party um, is putting forward. And, and I guess I would say, if I were giving advice to the um, to the RNC and to the um, Trump campaign, is that they have to push back on this um, portrayal of of uh, uh, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party as the kind of conservative guarantor of American principles and and, and national norms and ideals, um, because uh, you know I think that um, in many ways uh, politics, uh, voting behavior doesn't really I mean. Public policy positions are are not irrelevant. Um, policy positions matter on some level, but they matter less than most people think they do. Um, many people um, are going to vote on the basis of some kind of general 
social impression, cultural impression of, of the two parties in terms of what they represent. And, and so the contending candidates, the two parties are in some sense trying to build trust within um, uh, voters, potential voters. And that trust incorporates some impression with respect to policy positions. Um, people will view contending candidates' policy positions as some kind of signifier uh, with respect to their, their qualifications. Um, but, but policy itself is, is, I think, of a secondary um, importance when it comes to purely to politics and uh, uh, appealing to, appealing to um, election um, uh, voters. It's a whole other matter when it comes to actually governing. Obviously, policy is super important when it comes to governing. But the conventions aren't so much about that. They're more about um, uh, conducting uh, or preparing to conduct a campaign. Um, and so I think what the Republican uh, National Committee and the, the Trump campaign have to do is push back on this idea that, that um, the, the nation's soul needs restoring, right? That is um, uh, what, what um, Vice President um, Joe Biden has explicitly kind of characterized his campaign as being about. Um, because unless unless they they effectively respond to this idea of 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 the Democratic Party kind of evolving into and um, taking on the mantle of, of a kind of conservative guarantor of the national um, identity, um, I, I think they're going to really 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 struggle to to capture um, support um, in the middle of the country. Uh, I think to the extent that there are swing voters out there. There are some. Um, uh, I think that they're worried in, in a variety of ways about the direction of the country, um, and you know we're in enormously uncertain times. The 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 there are big problems kind of uh, moving. Uh, the, I would highlight the 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 pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, as injecting an enormous amount of uncertainty. Uh, with respect to the national welfare, with respect to individuals' uh, welfare, and the concurrent um, uh, recession that we're experiencing um, that is um, obviously associated with our um, response to that pandemic. And so people are worried, right? And so um, to whom do you turn in times of uncertainty? Um, I think that that the the Biden campaign and the Democrats have done a, a good job of 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 casting Biden as this kind of safe choice for the country in a time of uncertainty, and President Trump uh, kind of cast himself uh, purposely and consciously and effectively in 2016 as this source of disruption. He is this disruptor. He is this candidate of 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 shaking things up, and. You know, I think that you know, that works to a point. I don't think it worked very well as a, a kind of governing philosophy. Um, so that the, the the kind of governing record that the the Trump campaign has to run on is is pretty thin. Uh, but I do think if it comes down to kind of rhetoric, right? He's got to try to somehow um, resurrect the idea of the the Republican Party as this this. Fundamental bedrock um, uh, organization dedicated to, to the the country's principles, and and right now I think that that's there's a I think it's doable, but it, it, I think there's some real obvious challenges. Right, and of course it's one thing for uh, for various Republicans to step forward and and uh, characterize their party 
in those kind of terms, but then it's something else for President Trump himself uh, to step to the microphone and to convey that. When, of course, in 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 large measure, uh, part of what he was and remains all about, and why a large portion of his base love him as much as they do, is he came in as the disruptor, if not the destroyer, of certain sort of old systems and old ways of, of, of doing things. And uh, in a sense, it's a really strange role reversal, isn't it? Uh, it is. Between the two parties, uh, that is, is, is hard to kind of wrap your head around. Yes. Um, the, the unorthodox uh, uh, nature of President Trump and um, his presidency, uh, the very... Um, I think we can say a belligerent approach he takes to politics uh, has in some sense pushed some key people in his party into the, the, the Democratic National Convention program, right? And, and that, that, there's always a, an occasional person from the other side of the aisle willing to speak on behalf of a convention's candidate. Um, I, I'm struggling to, to remember a time where there were this many um, uh, prominent Republicans. Um, and you could say none of those Republicans is a current office holder. That's an important point. Um, but but each of the Republicans that spoke on behalf of Biden has a national profile, um, for sure. Um, at least many of them do. And I would also note that that um, when it comes to convention uh, or, or kind of norms, um, the, 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 the club of ex-presidents is always a small one. Right. There's not a whole lot of ex-presidents at any given point in time. And there's a clear kind of sense of, of informal rules about what you do and what you don't do. And, and the expectation of a former president is that you kind of you step back from the fray a bit. Um, you don't have to be nonpartisan. You can be um, uh, supportive of your party. There is the expectation that you should be supportive of your party. But you keep the gloves on with respect to um, uh, presidents that are you're trying to unseat. And Mr. Obama took the gloves off um, this week and very clearly, uh, and his wife um, perhaps even more clearly, um, characterized the sitting president as unfit for office. Um, and the, the, the controversy around um, President Trump, I think, uh, made the unusual nature of, of those statements um, seem less unusual than they really are from a historical standpoint. Uh, in just our last couple of minutes, one of the things, of course, that happened with the Democratic Convention was that Joe Biden and Jill Biden got to really have their stories told. I mean, uh, for people who even politically align themselves with them, they might not have known the story of really who they are. Um, that is something that that Donald Trump does not spend a lot of time doing in the sense of of crafting a personal narrative of where he comes from and why he is who he is. Um, and, and at this point in time, that's probably largely beside the point, I should think. But do you see any role in that for him? Does he need to try to do the same sort of thing or would that be counterproductive? That's a good question. Um, I mean, it really, I thought, worked very effectively for, for Biden, um, who, I mean, part of, part of the, the message here 
that um, the campaign and the party is crafting is that, you know, Joe Biden is a safe choice because he is a, a for whatever you think about um, politics, he's a decent person, right? And, and so that is the, the message that the Republicans they brought forward um, were trying to, to, to send. And, and um, you know, one of the challenges that Biden faced in getting the nomination in the first place is that many people within the Democratic Party kind of saw him as maybe too close to the Republicans, right, on a, on a personal level. And, and uh, um, the fact that he is close to the Republicans on a personal level really reflects, um, on some level, his, his, his moderate politics, but um, also a, a kind of uh, character, right, that he, he has uh, in which he, you know, I mean, he, he very famously, um, repeatedly said uh, during the, the, the convention and the, on the campaign about his, his father telling him that, Joe, you're no better than anybody else. Um, you know, there, nobody else is better than you. But right, it, it, in, in some sense, we all have this kind of intrinsic worth. And um, that narrative of, of Biden as this kind of caring, empathetic person, I think is effective. Uh, and, and to the extent that the country is tired of polarization, is tired of kind of caustic politics, um, Biden might be perceived as a balm, so to speak, a, a port in a storm for people whose minds are, 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 are not made up. Whereas um, President Trump has taken a, a real different approach. He has uh, cast himself as a fighter. Uh, as an unvarnished um, uh, uh, fighter for particular interests in the country. And he makes no apologies with, for his kind of politically incorrect speech. In fact, many of his supporters cite his political incorrectness as a, a virtue that they um, admire uh, in him. And so for him to kind of cast himself on a personal level as somebody who can reach out to um, – and appeal to people on a personal level. I mean, that's a difficult, a difficult thing for him to do. Maybe he'll try it. Um, I don't know. Um, I guess one of the things that he's going to have to do, and I, he, he might have some basis of, of, of kind of support for this in the, in the data, uh, is maybe cast himself as this kind of business savvy person um, that the country needs at a time when the economy needs to be rebuilt, right? Um, the, the economy does, in fact, need to be rebuilt and, and um, there is evidence in the polling that suggests that Americans see, you know, have a little bit more faith in him than Biden with respect to uh, addressing the economy. And so, you know, I, I, if, to the extent that the campaign and the, the, the convention, the Republican convention, to talk about President Trump in personal terms, I would expect them to, 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 to build up his, his business background or those elements of his business background um, that might reinforce a, a relative advantage uh, amongst the public on, on the economy. Hmm. Well, on that note, uh, we, we uh, leave it to our listeners to uh, watch everything that ensues, of course, from this point on, first of all, the Republican National Convention and then the remainder of the campaign, which, of course, is also going to play out in largely unprecedented fashion compared to uh, uh, any presidential campaigns that any of us have experienced. And at some point along the way, Professor Mast will want to uh, check in with you again to, uh, to get uh, your, your further thoughts on all of this as we head 
um, you know, inediv inevitably to uh, November. Dr. Gerald Mass, Chair of the Political Science Department at Carthage College, thank you, sir, for making time for this conversation today and for uh, joining me today on the morning show. Well, thank you for having me, Greg. It's always a pleasure.